If you will, please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We are almost at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we mentioned last week, these final verses from 15 to the end, verses 15 through 29, this is kind of the conclusion to the entire Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if you're able to stand, will you please stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, you have given us the words of your son Jesus here through your servant Matthew as he is given us this precious gospel to understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And as we have looked at these words for many months, we have gleaned from your Son, Jesus Christ, exactly what your kingdom is, what it means for us to be a part of it or to be a part uh, away from it. And Lord, now we come to this passage, and it can be very troubling to some that there's judgment that will happen and some will be a part of the kingdom of heaven and some will not. So God, I pray that you would give us discernment this morning as we hear from you directly. What does it mean to do your will? And is that a, nece- is that a requirement to be accepted? It's, this, these are, there are many questions here, Father, that many of us wrestle with and we can be confused by. But Lord, we, we ask that at this hour, you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would give us clarity of thought to hear directly from you. And so, Lord, this is your time. Please use it for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. How often have you ever been denied a reward, especially one that you expected? You were looking forward to the payment. You were, you did a, you, you, you did a good job. You have been an obedient person, an obedient child, an obedient employee, an obedient spouse. But how many times have we expected a reward, expected a, uh, an accommodation, and then turns out we don't get what we were expecting? Been there many times myself. Um, situations like this when we, we don't get what we fail that we have earned, that can be devastating. At the root of this issue is really the lack of pleasing the one who has the authority to grant you the reward or to grant you the gift. You have not pleased them or perhaps they had a different perception of what the reward would be. Let's say that you're an employee who feels that his or her work ethic was exactly what was expected by the supervisor, only to find out that when the employer wants to give a promotion, you miss it. And what you learn is not that your work ethic earned the promotion, but that the supervisor or the one in authority had a different vision 
and you are wrapped up in your work ethic. I am earning this promotion. I deserve this promotion. My work ethic is exactly what the boss is looking for. And then we find out, no, it's devastating. We now come to this next section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it follows the very direct teaching from the passage last week, verses 15 through 20, dealing with the fruits of the false prophets. This is a very direct transition. The ideas of being in God's will directly flows from what we saw last week, the false prophets who teach what they feel is correct and passionate, and they find out that they were teaching heresy all along and that they would not be accepted, and even the followers of the false prophets chose to go a different direction than God's will. At the fruit of the fruits of these religious leaders and their teaching is the will of man versus the will of the Father. Likewise, at the root of the permission to enter the kingdom of heaven that we see in today's passage, 21 through 23, is the will of the Father. Entering into the kingdom of heaven is solely by the will of the Father, not by our will. And that's a devastating truth that many cannot grasp. So now let's make something very clear here. Let's make sure that the illustration that I just gave of the employee to the employer, I'm not intending for this illustration to imply that the role of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is exactly like the role between an employer and an employee. Much different here, but it it, it serves a point. The relationship between the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is that of a servant, not an employee. We are to be servants. We are God's. Children, his citizens of the kingdom, we serve our master, our Lord. So the relationship is a lot different here than between just an employer and an employee versus our Lord Jesus Christ and us as the citizens of his kingdom. Much different relationship there. But but the essence of the idea of a reward for a job well done is the same in that in order to receive, one must please the one giving the reward. And we're going to look at this deeper here, exactly what does that mean in this text. Whatever the expectation is that one must meet, that expectation is not of us. That expectation is of the Lord. Let's make sure that that's very clear. We don't earn the reward. We don't earn entry into the the kingdom, do we? If we connect the essence of the verses 15 through 20 about the false prophets here, to the teaching here in verses 21 through 23, I think we can see clearly that when it comes to doing the will of the Father, it's not necessarily what we are doing, but instead it's the origin or the cause of the doing. What is the, in, what, what is the cause or, or the heart intent? What is the source of the doing? That's what determines the value of the doing. Remember, because here's what Jesus says here in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That brings up a lot of questions and a lot of confusion. Some may see that one verse and say we have to do something in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you just took that verse at face value, you may come along with that false interpretation. But let's, let's dig into here and see exactly what we're looking at here. 
Jesus is making a direct point here in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How do we do God's will? Again, Jesus mentions no words here. That's what we've seen throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not mincing words. He's very direct in his teaching. If entry into God's kingdom is determined by the will of the citizen, then it is the choice of the citizen on how to enter. But that's not what Jesus is telling us here. How many Christians do we know who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ when they give their testimony? Their testimony is all about what they did to enter Christianity. Some of us may have even been guilty of that. Here's what I did. I shook the preacher's hand or I prayed a prayer. I asked the Lord to forgive me, so I must be good. Look at what I have done. What is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching that entry into the kingdom of heaven is not about what the citizen decides. I did not choose to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Christians are called into the kingdom of heaven. They're called into salvation. They're not, they don't choose to enter into the narrow gate because the narrow gate, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is very difficult, number one, to find and even more difficult to go through and stay on that narrow, hard path. It's a very difficult thing. We would never choose that. We're called into it. So entering into this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is speaking about is not about what the citizen decides. It Instead, entering into the kingdom is about what the Father wills. At the heart of these words here, this passage 21 through 23, at the very, when you read this, at the very heart of what Jesus is teaching here, there's an, there's an overall theme of judgment. Judgment. So what is judgment? To judge can imply forming an opinion. We, we pass judgments all day long. Someone is forming an opinion the minute you wake up. Matter of fact, the first judgment we always make in the morning is, do I stay in bed or do I get out of bed? And then once we get out of bed, okay, how much coffee do I think I need? That's a judgment call. What kind of clothes am I going to wear today? Am I going to be at work on time? You know, we make judgments all day long. We form opinions. So what is judgment? It can imply forming an opinion. But normally in the New Testament, especially like in this context, judgment describes the passing of a sentence, like in a court of law. When the judge passes down the final judgment of the case, that's what we're seeing here. Remember, we saw that same thing at the beginning of chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Notice how in chapter 7, Matthew starts with the idea of judgment, and then Jesus continues to teach, and at the very end of chapter 7, we also still kind of see this theme of judgment. Look here at verse 21 again. The very spoken words, Lord, Lord, just because I say Lord, Lord, just because I proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as my Lord does not guarantee one's entry into the kingdom of heaven. This point is critical, I think, because there's a doctrine of lordship salvation. On some merits, it's very true. Jesus is Lord. But if we only proclaim the words, Jesus is Lord, 
and only depend on those words, Lord, Lord. Jesus makes it very clear here. That, that, that's not, that doesn't get you into the kingdom. Jesus is Lord. Our salvation is dependent on the Lordship of Jesus Christ because he has, he has bought us with his blood. That is very true. But the thing is, though, if all we say are those words, it means nothing. Genuine Christians do call Christ Lord, but merely saying these words is not the same as living the words. Living as if Jesus truly is Lord. Actually meaning the words is the point here. But let's look here at verse 22. Jesus now in verse 22 tells us what is not the will of the Father. Because in 21, only those who do the will of the Father are the ones who are entered into the kingdom. Verse 22 now tells us what is not the will of the Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Speaking, really, Jesus is the Lord here passing judgment. So what is not doing the will of the Lord. He says it. You can prophesy in the name of the Lord and it means nothing. You can cast out demons in the name of the Lord and it means nothing. You can do mighty works for the kingdom and it means nothing. The mighty works here, really think about this. How many times have we heard in the churches, do mighty works for God and he will love you. He has called you to do mighty works. Jesus' words here make it very clear those mighty works have zero value. What are the mighty works? I mean, Jesus is not mincing words here again. He's actually taking a stab at the religious elite once again. The religious elite, the Pharisees, they centered their salvation, their value before the Lord Almighty through what they did. And what did the Pharisees do? They spent all of their time in study and knowledge. And they did mighty works. And oh, look at me. Jesus is saying it matters nothing. So the mighty works of man received nothing. Yet... The great works of Jesus himself center on something much different than pride. Jesus' great works center on humility, sacrifice, and genuine knowledge of the Father, and the Father having a genuine knowledge of us. There's, there's a stark contrast there. At the heart of doing really is, is, is the source of, of, of the doing. The source of the action determines whether the, the doing part is valuable. Because the false prophets were corrupt, not simply for their output, but because of the source. Remember the fruit, the tree that produced the fruit was corrupt, so therefore the fruit was corrupt. Likewise, here in this passage, verses 21 through 23, if the heart is all about the self, then the output will be rejected. But if the out, if the source of the output is the humility and the sacrifice that our Savior does and transforms us in the process, then the actions will be much different, won't they? So let's take a look here a little bit deeper. The output 
or the doing, the outcome of the lives of the ones who claim citizenship in the kingdom, that's going to reveal the source of their action. So just because one says the name of the Lord in the act of doing a good thing, doing charitable works, does not mean that the heart of that action is truly blessed. We're getting at a heart issue here once again. The idea of doing, because this is what Jesus, he uses the language, who does the will of my father. What does it mean to do? What does it mean to do? To do is to make something or to bring about something, to cause something to happen. We cannot sit back as passive Christians and expect anything to actually get done. Amen? It takes action. We've got to do some stuff. But that doing does not substitute the origin of our salvation, and that's Christ himself. So the meaning of Jesus here, what's he teaching? Jesus is teaching us not that doing merits favor, but rather the origin of the action is what he's pointing to, the heart of the doing. That's what merits favor. If God the Father is not the one who's causing the doing, no matter the intent, what's the output? then the good actions are only that. They're only good actions. Nothing wrong with good actions. The question is, this is what Jesus is pointing to. Are, are your good acts what save you? Clearly not. It's the heart of the good acts. The Spirit of Christ in the redeemed is that which transforms the heart. And if that transformation does not occur within the heart of the sinner, then there are no good actions that God will even recognize. The transformation of the sinner to the redeemed. Wow, that's the mystery of the gospel that we're still trying to figure out. How does that work? God does it through the blood of his son. The Holy Spirit transforms us. This spirit of Christ, the transformation of the heart, changes the actions that we do to be valid, not invalid. The actions of the transformed heart, because those Actions come out of the Spirit of Christ. That's what we're looking at here. Amen? But for too many in the church, activity is the sign of the presence of the kingdom. If we stay busy, then we must have God's favor. And so activities are planned. Programs are established. Exhaustion comes as a result. And everyone's tense Somebody has to do this. But Jesus is never in it. You see the point? If we are active in serving the church, and if we're active in serving the needy, we can mislead ourselves in thinking that we have earned God's favor because we have substituted the transformation necessary through Christ for the doing of things. Amen? There's a, I mean, doing good works is awesome. We need to serve the needy. We need to take care of the community. We need to take care of one another in the family of God. All of those things are part of being in the kingdom of heaven, being part of God's family. But if that takes the place of the transforming work of Jesus Christ, all it is is idolatry. I think it's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. If one were to honestly challenge the Christian who is actively and passionately doing stuff, then we might find that this Christian does not know God the Father at all. They are substituting knowledge 
of the Father for action and service in the church. That's a very cautious, fine line, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do things. <laughs> we need people to do things. Amen? I'm thankful that Madison and Lisa, they take care of the coffee every Sunday morning. Hallelujah. I'm thankful that the men of the church are opening our services every Sunday morning with a reading of Scripture and prayer. That's doing. Amen? We have folks who, Joy and Dwayne, they help clean the church every couple of weeks. It's an amazing thing. That's a big help. And we, we could always use more help cleaning the church. Stuff like that has to happen. I mean, there's, there's things that need to be cleaned. Right? There's trash in the floor. Toilets need to be scrubbed. Floors need to be mopped. All of that is necessary. But that doesn't substitute the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so it's easy to fall into the error of doing things and totally missing the will of the Father. Because without the Father knowing us, without the transformation of our souls, then the actions that we take are actually null and void according to what Jesus says. Now, Again, how do we understand more of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7? Again, a great hermeneutic in the Gospels is sometimes you look at a parallel passage in another Gospel to kind of get deeper insight. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. This is a parallel passage to what we've just read in Matthew 7. Beginning in verse 22. We looked at this last week, but I want to look at something else here a little bit deeper because it really ties together what Jesus is is saying. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Remember, we looked at this last week, verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. You see, Jesus mentions no words here in in, in this small parable. He's teaching here that those who are saved will be few. And who are accepted in? Only the ones that the master welcomes in. This parallel passage, I think, drives home the point that one's choice of entering the narrow gate is actually meaningless. If we proclaim, I decided to go through the narrow gate, I chose to take the steps, hallelujah, Jesus, save me, it's almost as if we're declaring an entitlement, I chose this. But the scriptures say something totally different. It's a surrender. It is a hearing the call, show, and Christ showing us the path, the master saying, enter in and we follow. Look here at verse 25 of Luke chapter 13. After knocking at the door, these latecomers who come after the door is closed, they're wanting in. 
In other words, it's a further example of I choose when to come to salvation and when I want to. And the master has closed the door and said no more. Notice what is after knocking at the door, these latecomers are not welcomed in. The master of the house says, I do not know where you come from. And this persistence will claim to know the master. And they say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. That's verse 26. And that's a clear reference to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples, they ate and they drank together. Some of his disciples would claim, Jesus, we ate and we drank together. Don't you know me? And the answer from the the master here is, no, I don't know you. Imagine that, eating and drinking with the Lord God Almighty, and he still says at the end, in judgment, I never knew you. Now that's that's serious business. The final answer of the master of the house here in verses 27 through 28 tells us something very... And this is the response to those who, who desire to come through the narrow door. And he answers, the master says in verses 27 through 28, Depart from me, you workers of evil. Why are they evil? They're evil because their efforts, their desires are self-serving, not a desire to serve the master. They're not wanting to serve the Lord. Their efforts were for the purpose of of their own gain and their own efforts and their own desires and their own pride. And the Lord knows that. He knows the heart of everyone who comes to him crying out, Lord, Lord. And the Lord knows the heart of those who cry out to him. They didn't know what to care for. They didn't want to know or they didn't want to care for God. They didn't want to even want to know the Lord. All they wanted were the rewards of being with the Lord. Big, big difference there, you see. So let's see what else we can glean here. Look, at, look up back at Matthew 7, verse 23. Matthew 7, verse 23 actually echoes what we just read in, in Luke 13, 27. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7, 23? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, these are people who said, dear Lord, don't you know me? We, we shared a meal together. We, we, I listened to you teaching in the streets. Don't you know me? These are words of judgment that Jesus is giving. These are words of judgment that echo the final judgment between the sheep and the goats. You remember that parable? Matthew chapter 25, if you're able to flip over there. Matthew 25. The parable of the sheep and the goats. We're not going to read it all, but if you're taking notes... Verses 31 through 46, I challenge you to read that in its entirety on your own and study that. We're going to look at just a few things here. We're not going to look at all of it. We're just going to look at a few verses here because it does relate to what we're seeing in Matthew 7. The one who does the will of the Father is the one who does for the least of the ones in the community. These are the sheep. Remember, this is the, this is a parable. It's actually a proclamation of what's going to happen in the final judgment. The Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels are around Him and He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep are the ones who do the will of the Father. The goats are the ones who are not in the heart of the Father. Matter of fact, the goats come across as Christian workaholics. Is that a good term? Do we know some Christian workaholics? 
All they do is they want to work, work, work for the kingdom. They just want to do church stuff all the time. Let's plan something. Let's get it together. And they're just church workaholics. And that's all they do. And they're exhausted and they're tired. And there's not one ounce of Christianity in it. The one who busies himself with the actions of the kingdom rather than drawing near to the one who loves them and is calling them. The sheep and the goats here portrayed in this parable, they're, they're going to, they're both going to plead their case by citing the good works of their lives. But there's a difference in how the sheep plead their case and how the goats plead their case. The goats will be on the left. The sheep are going to be on the right. And the difference in the response to this final judgment between these groups tells the genuine heart of the groups and actually the genuine heart that Jesus is looking for. Look here, verses 36 through 40. To the sheep, the Lord says this, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. These are the words of the Savior. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, the sheep, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Notice that the judgment here is about the doings, the works. And the sheep who have been actually actually praised by the judgment, you have done this to me, and the ones who did the works of righteousness respond with an act, a genuine humility. When did we do these things to you, Lord? Verse 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Notice that the actions that receive favorable judgment are the ones that are humble but are intended to serve the Lord, not the one doing the actions. Now, in contrast, the goats who receive judgment are actually condemned. And they reply in a similar way. Look here at verse 44. And they say, when did we see you, Lord? But the king here points out that they refuse to serve the least of the kingdom. And when they refuse to serve the least, they they refuse to serve the king. Instead, they serve themselves. Excuses. I've got better things to do. I God has called me to mighty works for the kingdom. I don't have time to serve the poor lowly people. That would be the response. The difference in what one does is not necessarily what one does for the kingdom of heaven, but the motive or the heart of the action. Humility versus hubris, if you want to use that term. Hubris being pride, self-serving attitudes. The goats were greedy. They were prideful in their lack of service. The sheep were humble, and so much so that they didn't even recognize that their, they didn't even recognize their Lord's face as they were humbly serving those in need. Yet the Lord was there, according to this word. They merely did what needed to be done. They served the poor. They served the hungry. They visited the imprisoned. And they did it out of humility. They did it out of love. They did it out of service rather than arrogance and pride. And that received the favorable judgment. And that is what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 7. Doing the will of the Father. To the point you don't even realize that you're serving the Lord. 
You see that? So what is the takeaway here from what Jesus is teaching us? Flip back to Matthew chapter 7. Let's go back to Matthew 7. What, what's the takeaway here? The citizens of the kingdom will have to do much things. I mean, they're going to have much to do. They're going to be busy in the kingdom. Any Christian, any member of a church who says, I am bored, trust me, I'll find a lot for you to do. Let's go. Amen? We have much to do. And if we have much to do, and we want to do the will of the Father, we're going to be welcomed into the kingdom. Not that this action earns our entry in, it's just that, when we are called into the kingdom, the passion to do the will of the Father will come as a result, and there's going to be plenty for us to keep busy with. Yet Jesus condemns some who do, and He rewards others who do. So what's the difference? Those who do mighty works are the ones who are condemned in verse 22. And these mighty works are perceived by men to be great. And these are works that Jesus doesn't know. But the ones who Jesus loves, the truly righteous ones, are the ones who do the lowly service, the humble service. They do that which is the greatest need who Jesus knows personally and He knows well. In other words, the ones who do the will of the Father, they reflect the service of Christ who humbled Himself for us and lifted up the lowest of the sinners and said, you are forgiven. We reflect the humility of Christ In what we do, Jesus humbled himself so low that he came down to where we are in the muck and the mire of sin. He said, I love you. I want to pay the price for your sin. Let me take you by the hand and lift you up out of that low, filthy place and let me set you up in a better place beside me. And that kind of act of service is humble and sacrificial. That's the type of doing that we reflect if we are in favor of with God's favor, right? The ones who do the will of man, though, they're actually doing the will of the self. (laughs) And those are the ones who are too proud to do their work or to be associated with the lowly. And Jesus says those who have this kind of an attitude, that kind of action, that kind of work, that kind of doing has no place in the kingdom. It's like the church member who serves the church but doesn't worship. It's the one who serves the church and they substitute the work of the church for the relationship with the Savior. They want to come and do things for the church. They want to come and do things for the nonprofit, the food bank or whatever. And they don't ever darken the doors of the church and worship the Lord. They substitute the service for the worship. Big problem here. So no matter what we do for the kingdom, We have to ask ourselves, is it in the Spirit of Christ? I think that's the takeaway here of this passage. When we look at what Jesus says here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. No matter what we do for the kingdom, we have to ask, is it in the Spirit of Christ? Is it in the Spirit that Christ showed us through His humility and His sacrifice? Are our actions or service in a humble manner? Does it reflect Christ? Is what we're doing for humble purposes? Or are our actions 
service to the kingdom rather than service for the kingdom. Big difference there. Subtle, but important. Do we want to be associated with the poor? Do we want to be associated with the hungry? Do we want to be associated with the sinners? Or even do we even want to be associated with our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ at all? That's the key. This is the point I think that Jesus is saying here in verse seven, or chapter seven. And this theme is going to go, go going to continue here in chapter eight when we, when we finish out the end of chapter seven next week about building your house on the rock. And then as we go through chapter eight in the, in the next few weeks, we're going to see this same theme of association with the Lord through humility, building on the rock rather than building on sand. Same idea. So now as we transition in worship to uh, meeting at the Lord's table, I don't want us to forget what actions our Savior took on our behalf. That's the point of coming to the Lord's table. And we do this the first Sunday of every month, remember? I think it's important that we continue this important tradition, this important calling of Christ. This is an, an ordinance of the church that Jesus has given us as a gift to cause us to ponder and stop and reflect. What is it that Jesus did? Not what we do. What is it that Jesus has done? So let's not forget what actions our Savior took to claim us. He claimed us. He claimed us for Himself. His humility, His sacrifice, was all that worthy of remembering? Is all of that worthy of worship? Amen. As we transition into this time of service at the Lord's table, communion at the Lord's table, Lord's table, let's remember that the reason we do this is because we've been called by Christ to do it. As the Bill and Paul distribute the elements here in a minute, I want to challenge you to use this time for personal reflection. Meditate in your heart. Pray to the Lord at this time and just ask the Holy Spirit to, to search your heart, to illuminate anything in your heart that's in those dark corners that we want to hide. And this is a time where we reflect on the relationship between us and our Savior. These are the words of uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, whoever there eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And we have to remember that in this text, examining the self, I think, has two meanings. One is the personal self but the other is also the body of Christ, the collective communion of His people together. Is there a relationship in your life that needs some restoration? Is there a relationship between you and someone else in this church body or a family member or a co-worker that at this time the Lord is saying, you need to think about this and pray about this. Examine yourself concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. We have to discern the body. At this time, I want to ask that visitors, uh, you are welcome to participate at the table.
if you are a born-again, baptized, and redeemed child of God. Again, if you are not baptized and redeemed, then I do politely ask that you refrain, not out of condemnation, but out of respect. This is a time for God's people. This is a time for His church. Let me pray for us, and Bill and Paul will distribute the elements. Father God Almighty, we praise You. Dear Lord, You have given us this time as a gift. We pause at this time and remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. His body was broken for us. His blood was spilled. And this time of remembering is a gift to cause us to pause and to reflect on the humble sacrifice of our Savior. And oh, what a Savior He is. So God, I pray that at this moment You would fill this room with Your presence. You would receive us into Your embrace and allow us to ponder and meditate and remember in it as an act of worship for Your glory. Bless these elements, Father, the bread and the juice, for Your glory and for our remembrance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the elements come, please hold the cup. These are COVID-safe cups. Remember, we, I think most of us have figured out how to use these, but use this time for meditation and reflection. The Apostle Paul tells us as he reflects on that night that Jesus was with his twelve in the upper room. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me give a prayer of thanks. Dear Father God, we thank You for the body of Your Son. He was broken, He bled, He died for our sin. So God, we thank You for that gift of sacrifice. And Lord, I pray that You would humble us as we remember. Please take. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing at this moment. We're proclaiming his death and his resurrection for us. Please partake. Dear Father God, we thank You for this time to remember. We thank You for this gift of salvation that You've given us through Your Son. And I pray, God, that You would cause us to remember that it is not our doing that saves us. It is through Your mercy and grace, the sacrifice of Your Son, that redeems us and washes us clean, transforms us and makes us new. Oh, what a gift. And I pray, God, that you would be pleased with us today as we have worshipped you. Please close out our time, Lord, with your presence 
be pleased with our song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.